He said, you know what? I showed it to my superiors because I sent them the scenes. He said, you got to take it out because they said, they said, you don't know who might just decide that you're, you're retired now, hmm. you know, that, that, and before I get my pension. And, you know, he just said, you, you got to take it out. Hi, welcome to the True Falls podcast presented by KBIA. I'm Sebastian Martinez Valdivia. Every year during the festival, True False organizes field sessions, conversations between filmmakers about their films, experiences, and anything else that interests them. In this episode, we'll be listening in on one such conversation between filmmakers Meredith Zilke and Steve James. Zilke is an award-winning filmmaker and editor who co-directed A Machine to Live In, an impressionistic exploration of Brazil's peculiar capital city that showed at True False 2020. James, best known for directing Academy Award-nominated films Hoop Dreams and Abacus, Small Enough to Jail, premiered four episodes of his new series, A City So Real, at the festival. While James's series focused on the Chicago mayoral race, and Zilke's delved into the architectural mysteries of Brasilia, they found a similarity in their conversation, their approach. So in the brochure that explains our conversation, it says uh, that we both, like in all of our films, um, so it says that both of our teams had uh, holistic approaches to the film. Um, would you agree with that? Yeah. I, For you? Um, her film, I, I, don't know, I don't know how many people have seen either of our films here, um, <laughs> but, mm -hmm. but it's remarkable. Um, it's, and it's, I think it's a great pairing idea because, that Amir had because... Um, your film is such a, her film is like poetry. I think ours is prose, and, and I mean that, you know, good prose, but prose. Um, yeah. And um, it's really kind of a hard film to describe because it's so extraordinarily beautiful and it's so um, insightful at the same time. And anyway, I'm, I'm doing a terrible job of describing. You should just go see this film. It's, it's, a, it's, fairly, it's a really mesmerizing experience. But I wondered how you conceived of this film because it is, mm. you, I, I don't think you could, th these are both portraits of cities that couldn't be more different from one another. Yeah. Um, I mean, really, in so many ways, even though I think there's an underlying, you know, sensibility that, that I think we share some com common ground with, but, but the, mm. uh, the way in which you go about doing it. So tell me, what went into your thinking? The process? Yeah. We were always talking about process and always talking about um, methodology and, and new technologies and how to approach the documentary using the new technologies, for example, as a, pers a UFO perspective, yeah. as the UFO was a character in the film. Um, but to answer your question, the, m the methodologies that we use, the approach that we used to try to uh, it's seen in the longitudinal, longitudinal nature of the filmmaking process for us. So it took eight plus years to make the film. Wow. So like, uh, we had to go every s only the summer for eight years. And so it was really drawn out because of budget. We got a lot of grants to make this film, nothing else. And, uh, 
And so, but the beauty of that process was that every winter we would come back and edit something together, uh-huh. look at it, gather research. Um, it was the people who we were meeting in Brasilia who, like you described your process, we were meeting someone and meeting someone who was sort of... Uh, participant-led, process-oriented. So, for example, the poet laureate of the city, Nicholas Baer, he, you know, if you go to Brasilia, you go to a bookstore and his poetry books are all over the place. Some of them are organized alphabetically, where each letter represents a different concept or piece of history or underrepresented history in the city. And so we met and befriended, this is just one example to answer your question. We met Nicholas Baer, uh, gathered his work, read his work, you know, talked to him, and then we asked him to take all of his poetry on Brasilia, on the topic of Brasilia, the city, and uh, and scram- Frankenstein it, chop it up, scramble it, and put it to the tune of the hymn of Bra- Brasilia, the anthem. And then that those lyrics were given to a children's choir. Which is and a great scene. Yeah, it was. <laughs> and that was, uh, and the children's choir was directed by Sebastian um, to, to practice this song and sing it um, for camera. Those kinds of moments in documentary are sort of unforeseen. Yeah, totally. Yeah, but they're, it requires mutual trust in, yeah. in the conversation, of course. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, we, I know we wanted to have, I, I wanted to have, uh, current cops speak up in the film because I knew with the yeah. Laquan McDonald uh, trial that um, it was going to be a very contentious time around that. Uh, and we actually, Zach and I went to a cop bar on the north side without a camera. Um, and, and through a mutual friend, we got to sit down with a bunch of cops there and pick their brain. And I was trying to get them to be in the film somehow. And in fact, there was one cop who was in the film and then I had to take him out because he had to show it to his superiors and Mm. there's such a um, restriction put by the Fraternal Order of Police Mm -hmm. and and their media people, which is too bad because this cop that we were gonna have in the film, he is a much better representation of of what you would want from a police officer to say than the guys who speak for the FOP. Yeah. Those guys are idiots. Right. They, they're like the worst thing, you know? And it's like this guy was talking about how, you know, he was in one of the bars, one of the cop bars, and he was like talking about how, you know, you can't, you know, you can't say that 10,000 cops are all bad because there's, you know, a dozen bad apples or whatever. You know, he was making these points that, like, yeah, make that point, you know? It's like, that's yeah. a good point you'd want out there. But he, he said, you know what? I showed it to my superiors because I sent them the scenes. He said, you got to take it out because they said, they said, you don't know who might just decide that you're, you're retired now, hmm. you know, that, that, and before I get my pension. And, you know, he just said, you, you got to take it out. And I was like, cool, <sighs> take it out. But I, but... We managed to get that those points of view in there yeah. anyway, but not as explicitly as I wanted to because of idiocy. When you're talking about getting these moments with the um, your subjects, like, can you talk about ways that you um, can like create that comfort, or like what happens, you know, when you show up, you know, in Hyde Park or whatever, and just want to go in this this barbershop and talk to them like what what are the ways that you are able to navigate that and like um build trust take it away first yeah. um 
Uh, you know, I, we work really small, and, um, and like, for instance, in the Southside Barbershop, I think it was, it was really fortunate that th that particular day, I, didn't, I was there, but I didn't shoot. Kevin Shaw, who's, uh, who's an African-American filmmaker, was shooting that day, and, um, we, we, and Bailey, who did a lot of sound for us, who's also African-American, was also working that day. And um, so I think that that, I, I think that helped very much the level of comfort. Um, and of course, it, it didn't hurt that the day that we shot in the Bridgeport Barbershop that me and Zach were shooting, the two white guys were shooting. Mm -hmm. um, that mm -hmm. didn't hurt, right? And so, but I don't think it breaks down simply with race. I, I think, I've, I mean, I've, I've had, I feel like I've had good fortune of connecting in, in communities of color over the years with my filming. And I think, I think a big part of it for me is, is being able to sort of candidly convey what your intentions are and why, you, why you're interested and, and really demonstrate that you, you are here to understand, not here with some preconceived idea about what you're getting. Um, and I also find humor helps. Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm a people person in that way. I, I, one of the things I really love about making documentaries, the shooting part is just the interaction with people. This, this is why I could never make a Frederick Wiseman style mm -hmm. documentary. I couldn't just sort of be in the room and, I mean, I, I don't know what his process is like, but, but on the evidence of his films, I couldn't, I, 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 I'm too much of like wanting to talk to the people so, so and engage with them and have a relationship with them. And um, whether it shows up in the scene or not, that's a way I approach things. And, um, and so I think that, you know, I just find that, that if people read you as genuine um, and, that, and, and that you are there to understand and if you don't make a big deal about what you're doing, it makes a big difference. I mean, most of the shooting in this film took place with two people. You know, either I was shooting or my son was shooting or Kevin was shooting and someone was doing sound. And that was most of the shooting in the film. And I just, I, my whole approach is to just say, we're not doing, no matter who I'm dealing with, whether it's an ongoing subject person or whether it's someone I just encounter one time, is that there's no, this is no big deal what we're doing. We're just doing this crazy little thing and we'd love for you to be a part of it, you know? Yeah, and I don't know, I think I would answer that a couple different ways, and I know, I don't know if this answer is gonna be very satisfying, my answer, because um, it sounds like you did some of the same things too, but like, it depends on the project I'm working on. You know, if I'm working on a project that involves a lot of interviewing, um, then I, you know, I'm, I try to kind of create an environment where there is a, a lot more comfort than than there would be if I made other decisions. You know, like if if I'm if I'm walking into a community that's all Latino, I'm I'm not going to bring an entirely white crew. It's that's not something that that I would do. Um, but if you know, and and especially when I you know, as you know, because you're a documentary filmmaker, I, I say that because interviews require, at least I, I would like them to require honesty and comfort um, to, to place people in the context or in a situation where they feel like they're comfortable being honest. So, so I try to make, you know, I, um, I try to be honest with them, um, start off a conversation with, uh, you know, like lots of points to relate on. 
Um, I'm a new mom, and so in my other project, we talked a lot about those kinds of things too, like kids, because there's certain universal things to talk about, and um, just being j just being as genuine as you can, um, and. That's one thing. So that's why I say it's not a really satisfying answer because you know all those things. Coming up, Meredith Zilke and Steve James pick out some of their most influential moments creating their films. Hegi's got really defensive and he was trying to protect our crew and he's like, this is our crew, these are our brothers, like don't come near the camera. And he had a knife in his boot and he brought it out and then he, and then the scene ends where he puts down the knife. That's next after this. Welcome back to the True False Podcast, presented by KBIA. I'm Sebastian Martinez Valdivia. While filming their documentaries, both Meredith Zilke and Steve James found that just a few surprise encounters helped influence the direction of their work. For Zilke, it was a chance meeting with a biker in Brazil's capital, Brasilia. His name is Hegis, and he's, uh, he's like the president of his motorcycle group. And... Uh, he represents a lot of different things in the film. So like, I'm saying this in the context of what you bring back to the editing room. Like he's sort of right wing, he's sort of like on the right wing end of politics and he's also like super masculine and that delivers a very specific definition of power in the city. And the kinds of philosophies that he's discussing in that it was a group conversation, Sebastian was there, our other field producer, Jesse, so it, was, it wasn't like a head and shoulder interview. He's like kind of facing the side, right? So it's a group group talk. Um, but we were only miking Hegis. And so he, and he, but the philosophies he represents are his own, like his opinion on the city. And he's sort of nostalgic for a more rock and roll version of Brasilia that was smaller in population and a little bit more like trident, you know? And, and uh, but like also those philosophies are, baked into the city it's spoon-fed to 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 people in a way that like it was the Don Bosco's prophecy and like and 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 the visionaries the architects and the the, the city planners that created this city that was the philosophy that was given to people who live there so it was also like a mixed it was a hybrid philosophy that he was giving to us in the film his own and and also what he's what he's meant to think and say um, and then there's the whole rock and roll, like the kind of, you know, he, he, the situation, the situation that happened was a guy who was at this motorcycle convention that happens at night and it's all rock and roll and there's bands playing in the background and everyone has their motorcycles and they're there in leather and they're, you know, it's, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. So someone crossed in back of the camera and he crossed really close to our, our, our cinematographer, Andrew Benz. And, um, Hegis got really defensive and he was trying to protect our crew and he's like, this is our crew, these are our brothers, like don't come near the camera. And he had a knife in his boot and he brought it out and then he, and then the scene ends where he puts down the knife um, and you don't know what happens next. They kind of, the, the confronting nature of it does continue beyond that, but we cut it there. And so when we are moving around all these pieces in the film, you know, what do you put after that? You know, there's, this is not a head and shoulder interview. This um, is a little bit more raw, the scene. So where do you put that in the film? Well, the most, the formalist 
the most formalist approach. Like we had many scenes after that that we edited for years because we, you know, we had every year we had a different cut. And so we basically had scenes totally edited. And at some point we were just moving them around like Jenga pieces. But that's just one example. Sometimes you think you have a good idea about something and you go in there thinking, oh, this is what I'm going to do. And frankly, it would not have been a very interesting scene. I thought it was going to be really interesting. I, th I was really pleased with myself for the idea, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then we go there and it was Before like, going in. and then it's like, yeah, it's okay. And then this guy comes in who's obviously never been in that barbershop before to get yeah. a haircut. He looks like he hadn't had a haircut in several years. And a tall fade. A tall fade. Mm -hmm. and, and then it became something real. And, yeah. and the same with the Bridgeport Barbershop. You know, we had identified that barbershop as kind of, and been by there, and they said, yeah, yeah, you, sh you need to come back on a Saturday morning because that's when we, or, or, you know, the regulars are here and we get donuts and all that. So we were like, okay, great, we're going to come <laughs> back. But we didn't know they were cop ex-cops. We didn't know that a lot of those guys were ex-cops mm. until it's kind of the way you find out watching the film is the way I found out shooting the film. Oh, that's interesting. Which was they, they just seemed like these retired guys that like to give each other shit yeah. constantly and, you know, the way guys like that will do. And then it turned when, when the guy tells the racist joke, mm -hmm. it just sort of turns yeah. And then they suddenly revealed themselves as cops. And um, mm. it was like, wow, this is a much, you know, I, I thought we've got an entertaining scene. Yeah. But then it became, we have something that's even more than that, than just right. an entertaining scene of old guys giving each other shit. But um, one thing I wanted to ask you, I guess this might be just an obvious question, but um, I'm personally, maybe about 10 years ago, is when I would mark myself starting to become interested in electoral politics. Mm -hmm. Before that point in my life, honestly, I wasn't interested at all. Uh -huh. um, politics, yes, yeah, social politics, right. um, racial politics, personal politics, all mm -hmm. those things, but not electoral politics. Right. So when I, when I sat down to watch your series, I was just... You, you thought you were gonna be bored to tears. No, I, no <laughs> not at all. I never <laughs> ever thought I'd be bored to tears. I thought, I mean, I have a personal investment in the city of Chicago yeah. and also I knew I, I read multiple things about your series so I was very excited and I, there was so much momentum and so much representation so I was not bored at all <laughs> I was the opposite of bored but I I I was wondering about your you personally like um you know you touch on gentrification you talk on the the terrible process the fine print of the the whole uh, of electoral politics right. and like it, the petitions and and that angered me so much um were it was this ha, have you always been interested in electoral politics or was this a just the the portal into talking about the state of things uh, yeah in I the mean, world i mean i think you know, I, I'm someone who follows politics. Um, I, I tend to follow it more on a national level than on a local level, but um, in general. Um, but I, so I saw this, I saw this series uh, or film, whatever I can think of the film, uh, as an opportunity to really do a deep, much deeper dive than I've ever done into it. Like mm -hmm. I knew that the petition process could be kind of crazy. I had no idea how crazy it could be. Yeah. And, you know, I had no idea the degree to which that petition process sort of reflected 
what is so utterly insane about Chicago politics, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's a great portal into that. Um, mm-hmm. With all the films I've done over the years, um, even ones where, uh, oftentimes it's, I go into situations where I feel remarkably stupid about them and feel like, mm-hmm. and that's, that's a big part of the motivation to want to do the film. And in situations where I think I know quite a bit about a topic, I always find out pretty quickly I don't know anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's great because, you know, if you know it, why do it? Right. Um, so I, um, this was a great, you know, I've spent a lot of time in Chicago shooting in different neighborhoods in Chicago, but this took me to places, all kinds of neighborhoods that I'd neither been and certainly not shot. Meredith Silkey is the co-director of A Machine to Live In, and Steve James is the director of City So Real. Zilke's work, a hybrid documentary released last year with her co-director Yoni Goldstein, showed at Truefalls 2020. James's five-part miniseries, A City So Real, ran on National Geographic last fall and is currently streaming on Hulu. They spoke as part of the Field Sessions program at last year's festival. That's it for this week's episode of the True False Podcast. You can find past episodes of the podcast on our website at kbia.org or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced and edited by Isabella Paxton. Our music is by Tim Pilcher using sounds of the True False Film Fest. I'm Sebastian Martinez Valdivia. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 